Hello, and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, we feature a conversation with John L., author of A Free Thinker in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my friend Kevin P., founder of Free Thinkers in AA Kansas City. I think you'll enjoy this interesting conversation. Hey, we're talking to John L. here uh, this evening, and my name is Kevin P. Uh, here in Kansas City, coming from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, John is the author of a number of books, but uh, his, I think, uh, most recent one is a Free Thinker in AA um, Alcoholics Anonymous, Free Thinker in Alcoholics Anonymous, published by Pagan Press in 2014. Now, John, is this your? How many books do you have out there? About a dozen. I'm not even sure anymore. It depends what you count. Okay, yeah. understood. Yeah, yeah but uh, it, you know, I have to tell you up front, in my 25 years in AA, this has been the most important book I have read ever on modern AA. Uh, if I'd found your manu- manuscript, uh, you'd left it somewhere in a, in a bus stop or a Starbucks or something, I would have borrowed it and signed my name to it and published it under my name and steal it from you because I, I agree virtually, agree with you virtually on every point almost. Uh, but, um, I'm just wondering, you, you, you know, you sobered up in 68, correct? Yeah, right. February 68. Man, that is that. That's a long. That's a long haul. So, uh, and you were in. Uh, that was in the uh, the village in New York there, in the Perry Street workshop. Yeah, I lived in what's called either the Lower East Side or the East Village, which would be East of Greenwich Village. But uh, Perry Street workshop would be about a two thirds of a mile walk across town. Okay. Okay. Well, besides um, Smokey, what were AA meetings like back then? Well, I describe them in my chapter in the Perry Street Workshop, but even there, uh, then as now, there's an enormous difference in one group to another and one individual to another. So, you know, I compare AA in Boston with AA in Perry Street 50 years ago, 48 years ago, and it's not really a good comparison. Um, For example, in Manhattan, after I got my first year, I did a lot of talking. It was believed that you had to have a year of sobriety before you really did much speaking. Mm-hmm. But I spoke at Sober Sam's in the Bowery, which was a Salvation Army uh, shelter for homeless men, alcoholics. And I spoke at uh, a group in the Upper East Side, which uh, it was rumored that almost everybody there was in the social register. It was very, uh-huh. um, very high class, and uh, I felt perfectly at home in both groups. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there was everything in between. Um, Perry Street was very heterogeneous. All types of people, people really low, low bottoms. Uh, I was a very low bottom drug physically, but there were also people who were established writers and uh, professors and uh, you know, everything in between. Now, I, I read you know, in your book about uh, you consider yourself a low-bottom drunk, and then you go into a description of your physical uh, demeanor after drinking the amount of alcohol that you drank. Um, I, that particularly struck me because I'm a low-bottom drunk also and had to be almost dead before I would come into the program. So, um, you know, there's still low-bottom drunks around. Um that, uh, you know, back then, did people care if someone was cross-addicted or, or had uh, Bill Wilson written his pamphlet yet about how narcotics people should not come to our meetings? Or Well, things change. Um, you know, when I came in, I was a pure alcoholic. I never tried uh, any of the drugs, heroin, cocaine, and all of that. Oh. Uh, I smoked pot a few times, and I thought it was for children. didn't do much. Um, but that's changed now. Uh, I personally think that at least some meetings, to me the ideal meeting is a closed meeting for alcoholics only. And that's because we can then talk candidly to each other, um, as opposed to open meetings which are open to the general public. 
And I think that anything alcoholics talk about to each other can be relevant, even though it you know may not directly uh, concern alcohol. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, now I'll, back I'll back up a little bit. You used your you last used name in uh, publishing the book, so you made, so you made a, a conscious decision to break your anonymity. Was that uh, you know from the Marty Mann years, or what's your thinking on that? It was a number of things. I discussed it with people. Um, what's her name? Um, oh dear, who wrote that biography? Oh, Susan Cheever. Mm wrote a thing in the piece on anonymity, and she broke her anonymity. But there would be all sorts of practical problems for me if I were to use, uh, you know, only my initial. Problems with um, distributors, with Amazon, with uh, librarians, and um, I just decided... uh, well, to me, the, the anonymity rule would apply to people that were self-promoters, mm-hmm. like uh, the story of Bill W., you know, and the baseball player, where um, Bill W. was envious of the fact that the baseball player got so much publicity, and he tried to compete with it, and then was brought back down to earth, you know, with, with other people and invoking the anonymity thing. But I'm not a self-promoter. It's just the fact that I'm the author. And uh, okay, so okay, so it was a practical reason. Yeah, basically. Yeah, also, I kind of uh, think that that whole anonymity tradition is all about not promoting AA. It's not necessarily about us being secret. Although I know I know it's that level of press radio and film. But I'm kind of I'm kind of getting a little bit um, liberal on that whole thing. To be honest with you, I don't know how how you feel about that, John. But I'm kind of well, I think it's a lot of things, but it's that also, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, certainly different professions and people have different reasons, so I always want to respect anyone else's anonymity, but I'm very liberal on that uh, on that aspect. Um, you begin the book with some, some very inflammatory words about, you know, in the foreword talks about be forewarned, you know, I'll criticize AA in this book when I think it's warranted and I'll defend AA when it's when it's necessary uh, from the AA haters and also deal with the um, the AA fundamentalists that uh, the free thinkers atheists agnostics we kind of get uh, we get gored from both sides and I was wondering what uh, you know why did you take on why why did you publish this book in 2014 why did you feel there was a need for it well I don't know if my words were incendiary to me they were just simply a a matter-of-fact statement of what the book was, but um, the main reason was that I had written quite a few articles for the website AA Agnostica, Mm -hmm. which are about half of the chapters in the book, and I realized I had, you know, the kernel of a book there, and I decided to round it out with, you know, a few more. Um, the two most important chapters are on the, the 24-hour plan and the uh, the fellowship, which I added for the book. But um question of getting it from both sides uh, the, is true. Uh, I, I try to make a distinction, which may be difficult, uh, between what I call the true AA. And that's really the AA that I do in my early years in New York City. Yes. And the false AA, which would mean all of the religiosity and the cultic behavior and irrationalism and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, that was my favorite part of the book um, in the fifth chapter there where you quote, uh, rather that you write that, you know, the true AA is the A that works. This is the A of the 24-hour plan, staying away from the first drink at a time. From the, from the first drink a day at a time, and that the true A's is centered on the fellowship, alcoholic sharing, experience, strength, and hope to help each other get sober, stay sober, and rebuild others' shattered lives. Then you go ahead to say, you know, the false AA is one of dogmatism, cultic behavior, uh, conformity, intolerance, anti-intellectualism, and helpless without God religiosity. They, the false AAs not only re- repels non-believers, but reasonable believers as well. By driving away alcoholics who are desperately in need of help, false AA kills. 
And you know, I, I that pretty much summed up everything that I felt about AA today because my experience has been that AA is a lot more religious than it was 25, 20 years ago. Have you found, uh, you know, in your experience, uh, you found the meetings getting more religious and there's there's more God talk and group talk uh, in, in the meetings nowadays? Well, it's hard to make a comparison. I mean, um, the meetings that I've gone to, I lived in New York City for 30 years and then uh, Provincetown on Cape Cod for eight and now I've been in Boston for 13. And uh, none of the meetings I regularly went to ended in the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of them I regularly go to. Well, no, that's not true. Um, no, none of them I regularly go to now read How It Works, which I mm. loathe. Yeah, hey, me hey, too. Hey. Uh, but the... Uh, the Lord's Prayer is still recited in other parts of the North America. So, oh, absolutely, yes. Good I have time no idea. here. There's one group uh, right in Harvard Square, um, which meets at noon, and uh, they not only read how it works, but they they read passages from twelve and twelve, and they have read passages from the Bible, and they end with the Lord's Prayer. Well, you know, ick. Yeah. But only a few. Blocks from there are are evening meetings, um, which are not at all religious. One of them is what I would call Boston's only crypto secular meeting, and it's called As We Understood, and it's it's a fine meeting, no prayers at all, no readings, but um, these whatever intergroup central services wouldn't allow them to be listed if they used words like agnostic. So they had to use a word like, as we understood, which is completely meaningless. Hmm. But words gotten around. Unofficially, it's known as the God is dead group. <laughs> hey, fact, John. Yeah? I was going to ask you. Um, I, I know I was talking to this guy that got sober like in 1965 in California. And he said that back when he was first getting sober that people didn't really make a big deal about the steps so much that for them, the biggest thing was just um, the 12th step. For example, they would all go down to central office and answer the phones and do that kind of service work for people. Is that kind of how it was in New York too, back, back in the sixties? Well, yeah, certainly Perry street, uh, Perry street had a fine beginners meeting. People from all over Manhattan would go there for beginners meetings. And it was believed very strongly that you should not introduce the steps at all in the first year of sobriety. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And there there was uh, a meeting um, a few blocks away from Perry Street, which was a step meeting. And everybody from all over would show up whenever they had a fourth step because people would go there to dump all of their deep character defects, and it got really uh, – <laughs> I, I, I was absolutely shocked, you know, when I heard the things that people were confessing to, I, you know, that they would discuss it in public. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a competition, and everybody enjoyed it. It, it wasn't at all, you know, saturated with religiosity the way you think of it. That's funny. So it was yeah. an open, it was an open uh, four-step meeting. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the... The tw- I don't know. It's it's really hard for me to make a comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just kind of curious because, of course, you know the AA that I went to was um, here in Kansas City. Anyway, the group I went to was big book, big book all the time, twelve and twelve all the time, um, and you know trying to do it just the way it was back in 1930s. And so, and I'm and I'm learning that it wasn't always that way. Well, the question is, when did AA start? And AA history is really quite dishonest. I mean, you never know, you know, the the moment Bill and Bob talk together for the first time and they have a, this allegedly original idea that the way to stay sober is for one alcoholic to talk to another. Well, huh, that that wasn't original at all by a good century. <laughs> you know, the Washingtonians certainly had that. Then sometimes it looks as though the meetings in the Oxford group, the alcoholic squad in Akron that was um, 
you know, organized by Henrietta Cyberling. They confuse that with AA. But to me, the only real way of looking on the founding of AA was in May 1939 when uh, Clarence Snyder uh-huh. had the first meeting that was called Alcoholics Anonymous in Cleveland, Ohio, not Akron. And, you know, before that, AA, there was no A really. I mean, AA developed with its character of meetings having a certain format, uh, different types of meetings, speaker, you know, beginners, discussion, um, rotation of leadership, all sorts of things. These were unknown before uh, the first meeting of AA in Cleveland. So I don't think AA have ever had a, an official founding moment. If there was, I don't know what it was. Yeah. It, just point, sort, it just sort of grew. I mean, yeah, you, you speak to that in your book about, you know, Clarence Snyder and the problems in Ohio and the split between he and, and Bill and Bob, as I understood it. But, um, you know, today I, I'm in meetings where people start to say that, uh, you know, the steps are divinely inspired and that Dr. Bob and Bill, you know, they, they, they pretty much describe them as prophets. And, you know, I can't tell you how much... How nervous that makes me when I hear that in a meeting, that they think that you know, we're special people and they have an incredible list of rules and, and regulations that you're supposed to follow. And I just, uh, I just didn't know whether, whether you've seen that there's, there's more of that or there's less of that nowadays. Well, a couple of things. Uh, the more I learn about Bill and Bob, the less I like it. So I, I, am, I am biased. But I think there's a great danger of a leadership cult, which is, you know, I'm opposed to cultism in any form, and certainly that's a part of it. And, John, you're you're not like a big proponent of the steps, per se, either. It's more the um, connection with other alcoholics and the 24-hour plan. Well, if it, if anyone wants to make steps, I mean, I have my own version, which is in the book, of free, yes. free thinker steps. But I think the main thing goes back to something highlighted by uh, Dr. James R. Millam in the book um, Under the Influence. Hmm. And that is to say that um, it's wrong to say that alcoholism is caused by character defects that it's the other way around, that good people, um, through their alcoholism, can do bad things, and that, you know, with healing, time and and abstinence, the good personality will return. I mean, it may need a little help, but, you know, it's not true that um, alcoholism is caused, is merely a symptom of psychological defects. In fact, if any, you know, it, alcoholism is basically a, a physical addiction to a particular drug. And see, that's that's what I've argued in meetings: is that you know, when I stop drinking, there's a lot of sociopathic things that you know I don't do anymore because I had a very good, uh, very good group that I first went to, and uh, they were very liberal and. Um, you know, they kept telling me to, you know, don't drink. And your job today is just to make it till bedtime, not drink. And then, you know, can you come back tomorrow? And I'd say, yeah, you know, I'm well employed. So they would be back. As simple as that is, I found it extraordinary in my recovery to use the, as you say in your book, 24-hour plan and the... The fellowship, and I would assume that you feel that that's the meat of the program. Yes, exactly, and uh, the fellowship covers so much. I mean, uh, the fellowship is not only alcoholics talking to each other and sharing experience, drink, and hope. It's also, as someone pointed out in the discussion thing, it's uh, doing a 12-step call to somebody who is in really bad, bad shape and, uh, you know, dealing with their messes and all the rest of it. In in all your years of recovery, what has been the most difficult for you, 
John. Uh, I'm sorry, what? In all, your in all your years of recovery, staying continuously sober since you walked in the door, um, you know, what's been the most difficult for you? Was it the physical recuperation at the very beginning or, or what? It's hard to say. I mean, in terms of a danger of picking up a drink, um, I never, ever had a doubt, you know, that that I had to remain abstinent. I mean, uh, for me... You know, 48 years ago and right now, if I were to pick up a first drink, I would consider myself signing my death warrant. And it might happen in two days. It might happen in six months. I have no way of knowing, but, you know, it it, it would happen. But uh, probably for this fellowship, there were a few times when uh, simply – Emotional, well, not emotional, uh, I can't see the right word, Um, disagreement isn't quite it, and hostility, you know, to and from others uh, was a danger to my fellowship. In my book, I describe how in very early sobriety, I was upset by the um, attack on the campaign headquarters of of Senator McGovern, and I shared that, and I I had been active as much as I was able in the anti-war movement, and people violently attacked me. I mean, they were furious and yelling and screaming. And, you know, women had to lead me outside of the meeting, and we held an alternative meeting on near Perry Street. Yeah. And, of course, they were also, you know, anti-war activists. And so, we, you know, there were about maybe, I would say, eight or ten of us that left the meeting, and we had a fine meeting. And I I was crying. I I was very new in sobriety, and I was very upset about the uh, attack on the campaign workers. It was the the police of Mayor Daley in Chicago burst into the campaign headquarters of a a, Democratic candidate, and they destroyed equipment. They beat up people. They even took campaign uh, workers and dragged them out of bed in order to beat them up. It, It was a horrible, horrible form of fascism. Fascism is almost an inadequate word, and I, I was very upset. But um, I just realized there are some things you don't talk about in meetings. I mean, um, it's one thing to say that you can talk about, you know, anything if you're in a meeting with other alcoholics, but politics is something that's best avoided completely. Yeah, and that was a pretty divisive time for politics, uh, 68, 69, 70? It would have been about... Uh, 69, I think. I forget the exact date, but I think it was 69. It's in, it's in my book, but yeah. It's, uh, now, I have to give you credit, John. Um, I've been quoting you in traditional AA meetings, and they had the same reaction. They want to uh, uh, you know, scream, uh, holler me down, and uh, chop me out. And uh, I think a, a number of people that are very fundamentalists are very upset with the secular movement and also very upset with people like me who, you know, I consider I have long-term sobriety. Um, and I quote things out of your book in meetings and people get people get really upset with me. And I'm suddenly a pariah among a number of groups here in town, which is one of the reasons why you know we started the Free Thinkers uh, group in Kansas City was to have somewhere to go and be safe. Well, you know, we want to. Yeah, you're lucky to have a free thinkers group. Um, I don't. I'm working now on an article which turned out to be much, much more difficult than I thought. But it's on how we discussion, how we share with each other, and uh, one of the little subtopics is so-called crosstalk, mm. which has been defined differently. Like when I came in. If crosstalk was used at all, it meant simply one person speaks at a time. I mean, you, you don't interrupt someone if you're not, you know, while they're speaking, and you don't speak out of turn. That's how I always understood it, too, yes. until recently. But now there's a very peculiar interpretation, meaning that you should never, even if it's your turn and you're called on, you never should respond to something anyone else has said, which is absolutely ridiculous. There's no way you could share experience, strength, and hope if you never respond to each other. Well, that uh, that brings us to rigidity uh, in the meetings and uh, the rituals that we're seeing. As you mentioned earlier in the interview, 
uh, you know, the people that, you know, we have to read the, the 12 traditions, we have to read the 12 steps, we have to read how it works, you know, and some groups then read the promises, and it just goes on and on. Yeah. And they're so rigid about crosstalk and how they interpret it, or, you know, can you bring a pet to the meeting or not, or something totally ridiculous. And, um, the trusted servants, uh, I'm not sure a lot of them should be trusted that much. On that crosstalk thing, though, um, the what what I hear people talking about now, where it has affected me, where I've actually been hurt by it, is people use crosstalk, at least around here, John, to put you in your place. So if you're yes. if you're not if you're not saying what every what the group thinks is the right thing to say, as far as you know, believing what the big book says, and and that's the kind of group I came from is. You have to say what the big book says, and if you if you if you um, deter from that, people will put you in your place by addressing what you said and contradicting what you said. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's not easy. Um, I don't know rigidity. You know, the, I've only been to you know a few meetings in Boston, so I have no idea what you know. The there are hundreds of meetings in the greater Boston area. And I have no idea what a lot of them are like. But to me, the meetings in Boston are sort of a smug complacency rather than rigidity. And um, I really do feel I had much better AA in Provincetown and Manhattan. But still, you know, I like the groups I go to. There are about maybe four of them. And I don't go to meetings that often. I, I don't feel a need to, so I just sort of rotate the groups I go to. Interesting. All right. Do you? You know, I've always had a theory that the longer you're sober, the less you say, and the you know, the less AA. I mean, if you put your life back together, together through the framework of AA, and you lead a life, you don't have the time to go to you know two meetings a day. Um, have you noticed that there's a lot, a lot of people who you know, have 20 years that don't come to AA anymore? Well, there are different patterns. I mean, I have I've had a rather full life. So times I've been very very busy, but I've always tried to go to at least one meeting a week. But my friend Richard, uh, who died a few years ago, he uh, was 80 and he had uh, almost 40 years of sobriety. Uh, Richard only went to five or six meetings in the course of a whole year, and for him that was enough, and he he checked in. But my friend Ben in San Francisco uh, died recently at the age of 89, and he had 59 years of sobriety. And for years, decades maybe, he simply went to one meeting every week, the same meeting. And it was, you know, they were all friends, and uh, it's probably as much social as anything, but that, that was what he did. Interesting, yes. Um, moving in a different direction, have you been keeping up with the uh, dust-up in Toronto um, about the uh, agnostic group being delisted because they had their own version of the steps, and now the, the suing to force the central office to listen? Well, it, it's outrageous, but I don't know ex what to do not being there. But um, I think there's a time for a certain amount of militancy. Really? Um, yeah. On our part, John? Yes. That, as, you, as you said in your book, these, these people that are practicing false AA need to be confronted because the stakes are so high. Well, if they're, you know... The, the delegates or whatever they were to the, the meeting of a central service where they decided to delist them. Um, I think there'd be nothing wrong with several meetings from the agnostic group going to their meeting and in the discussion just calmly and candidly explaining why they were opposed to whatever, the readings, and why they were opposed to being delisted. I, I don't think... You know, it shouldn't be done in an angry way, but um, when you get to things like the steps, uh, it's going to be a, a long struggle, and it may, I have no idea what will happen. Maybe AA will split. Maybe AA will be reformed as it ought to be. I have no idea, but um, there is an industry, you know, built around the publication of all of this, these books and stuff, and uh, 
I don't think there's any way that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous would go along with uh, shelving the 12 and 12 or, you know, the big book or as Bill sees it or any of this other stuff. You know what gets me about that, John? I guess they still sell a lot of those books, but it seems like if they wrote a new book, a new modern book from our century, that that would sell. And especially if it had the AA name on it. It seems like they could, they could actually do well with that. I don't know why they don't think that way. Well, I the book that I recommend is Living Sober. Yeah. And I, I, I had been sober a few years when it came out, and we were all so excited because it represented what AA was to us. Uh, this is in the Perry Street and Greenwich Village groups. Um, but there's certain hostility to it. It was uh, revised a few years ago, and the revisions on the whole were for the worse. Like in Living Sober, there's one chapter, like chapter 32 or something, which is on the steps. It's very brief, and the steps themselves are never printed at all. So it's like the steps are among the least important thing for the author of it. But the, the revision... Um, they put the steps back in, you know, they're printed there, and they made various other changes. But the author of Living Sober um, was simply given a lump sum for writing it, which probably wasn't that much. He got no royalties at all, whereas Bill W. made millions. You yeah. know, back when a billion, you know, that was when to say someone was a billionaire. You meant like a very rich man. Now a billionaire, you know, wouldn't amount to much. <laughs> so he really did well, didn't he, Bill W., with the book? Well, he was only one of about 32 authors, but he managed, Kanaev, to uh, get himself listed as the, the only copyright author. Mm -hmm. And so no one else got a penny of, of royalties, but he got millions, as well as the other books. I was going to ask you too, John. Um, I know you're not crazy about Bill W., and a lot of people love him, and I always thought he was universally loved too, but he wasn't. What, what is it about Bill W. that you don't like and that maybe other people in AA resented? Well, I dislike a lot of things, including his pro style. I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I was called a snob because I, I said that, you know, the big book was poorly written. Yeah. But um, he did one thing to me that was so sleazy, where his partner, Hank P., in, in Think Hall Works or whatever it was, uh, was on a slip. He was drunk and helpless. He needed money desperately just for another drink. And Bill W., instead of you know persuading him not to drink or trying to sober him up, took advantage of it. Um, he conned... Hank P. into giving up all of his shares in return for $200, which wasn't even given to him. He, the $200 was to buy furniture, which belonged to Hank, and may, may very well have been worth more than $200. Uh, that's something that you simply don't do. I mean, you don't take advantage of someone being drunk. Yeah. I've heard that story. Well, it's, it's true. Mm hmm you know, the, the, I think the story in a book by a man named Raphael, I can't remember the exact title, Matthew Raphael, tells it. The, the stock that Hank gave up would have been worth billions in a few years. Wow. And he got $200, not even that, but just for, you know, furniture. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've certainly heard that story also. But uh, in the, um, the people who knew him in Perry Street, um, he was still alive when I came in. I don't think anyone liked him, but mostly he was just spoken of condescendingly. Mm -hmm. um, one person hated his guts, but that was, uh, I can't remember what it was over. But I, I truly believe that Bill, are you still there? Yeah, we're here. Oh, okay, something went wrong. I was playing with my mouse. <laughs> uh, I truly believe that Bill Debbie was relapsing in the last few years of his life. And it was, it's a matter of connecting the dots. But on the last couple of months of his life, he repeatedly demanded that his male nurses get whiskey for them. And he got mad and attempted to slug a male nurse, you know, for not getting it for him, which is very stupid because male nurses know how to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, he also didn't go to AA meetings in the last several years of his life. 
and he gave the excuse that, oh, if I went, I would be asked to speak, which is not necessarily true. I mean, he could have found a group where nobody knew him. Um, and he tried, you know, all sorts of drugs other than alcohol. He was always looking for some chemical cure that would let him start drinking again. So to me, if he demanded whiskey, it meant because he had been drinking and simply wasn't able to get it himself, so he wanted the nurses to get it for him. That's only a hypothesis, but to me it makes sense. Yeah. 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 No. I don't see anywhere in Bill W.'s writings where he ever mentioned a 24-hour plan or simply don't drink. It's all just on you know, character defects or obtaining spirituality or, or other stuff like that. That's true, isn't it? Yes, hocus pocus, as I call it. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, in a little different direction, John. Um, now, you mentioned that you don't believe in any kind of psychotropic drugs. Um, what is your reasoning behind that about antidepressants and all that that have been prescribed to, to members of AA? What's your thinking with you know, not having any drugs uh, to assist in sobriety? Oh, I, I didn't quite catch your question. Uh, is your stance on not having any kind of psychotropic drugs um, if a psychiatrist uh, prescribes you an antidepressant? That you feel, that you feel uh, from the reading, it, it seems you feel rather strongly about that we shouldn't be doing any kind of drugs at all, well, that, whether yeah. they're prescribed by a doctor or not. Okay, that gets into a, a rather horny uh, area. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. When I came in, uh, the meetings, not only Perry Street, but in the village, had a thing uh, announced at the beginning of the meeting. They said, we ask that if you have used any mood changer or had a drink today, that you do not take part in the discussion, but please stay around and talk to someone afterwards. That, that was the standard. Uh, there was only beginning the reaction against Librium and Valium, but um, the medical establishment said that Librium and Valium are safe. They're not like those other terrible tranquilizers like Milltown. They, they don't have all those toxicities, and they're absolutely not habit-forming. Well, we heard one person after another at Perry Street describe the horrors of addiction to Valium or Librium and how hard it was to break the addiction to them. So we knew it wasn't true. And so word of mouth in AA was far ahead of the medical establishment. And, of course, now it's admitted that, oh, that they certainly are addictive and they're not, not good. But um, the doctor I saw, Frank Satius, was the top alcoholism specialist in the United States and I got to know him quite well and he you know clearly was in the uh, thing that you know was not the thing to do for alcoholics to take other other drugs some of them like barbiturates uh, we we considered to be simply alcohol in dry form because it was so close to yeah. it mm -hmm. But I heard a presentation by a, a male nurse at a, a um, roundup in New York City where he discussed in great detail all of the sedative hypnotic drugs, which include all the tranquilizers. And the conclusion from it is that you know using any of them is simply not a good idea for an alcoholic. But in addition to that, I, uh, I've read quite a bit on the, the, the antidepressants, the SSRI drugs. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Many books by Peter Bregan, B-R-E-G-G-I-N, um, who's been sort of the main person sounding the warning on them. And here we have drugs where there's no valid research showing they have any benefits whatsoever. I've heard, I've read the same thing. And it, well, that, that's better than some drugs. Some drugs <laughs> I know, show I know. some miraculous benefits, but they're all based on fraudulent research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, um. These drugs cause permanent, irreversible nerve damage. Mm -hmm. Thing like uh, what's called tardive kinesia, where even years after stopping the drug, all of a sudden the body will just go uh, a spasm, a twitch, you know, um, and it, it, it lasts forever. Um, 
they're they're highly addictive. Um, actually, I have a book right here um, by Peter Bregan. It's called "Your Drug May Be Your Problem: How and Why to Stop Make, Taking Psychiatric Medications." And it varies from individual to individual and drug to drug. Right. right. But um, in so, in so, a susceptible person who's taken one of these for at least a few months, uh, the withdrawal can be so severe that people commit suicide. They just can't bear it. So it would be wrong to tell someone who'd been on them to, to just stop cold turkey. Right. They have to know what they're doing, and uh, some of them it may take several months making just tiny, tiny decreases in the dosage until the person is finally off of them. But, you know, that to be taking a drug that's that addictive is not a good idea. That's really interesting. I, I, uh, I th- you're 10 times, 100 times more intelligent than I am, John, but I, I take an antidepressant. I take a bupropion, which I don't, I don't think it's a, um, addictive or anything, but... If I were not to take it, I would feel that slide into depression that that could be that could be dangerous because so it kind of makes you kind of wonder. But I've also read um, in the paper, New York Times, some time ago, that they did have a study that these things really they they aren't proven to be effective, and that I might just be experiencing um, what's it called the. Possibly, but if I am experiencing that, then why not? I don't know. What do you? I mean, I so I, I think it's interesting to think about. It's a very difficult thing because uh, for an AA member to give advice on this is yeah. opens the door to all sorts of things that are not good. Yes. But on the other hand, the idea of trust the doctor. No AA should ever play doctor. When I came in at Perry Street, there were only like three doctors in all of New York that thought could be trusted with alcoholics. And the doctor I finally saw, his main mission as he became a medical director of the National Council on Alcoholism was to educate his fellow physicians who learned nothing in in medical school about alcoholism, nothing that was true. And um, if you leave it up to doctors, they will base it not on what they know, but what has been told them by what are called detail men. And detail men is a euphemism for salesmen mm-hmm. of the pharmaceutical companies. Doctors will subscribe to the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, they'll have all of this. But they don't read them. They, they, they get their information from the, the detail man. And if you were to, people think if you research something that you get a second opinion, so... You ask another doctor, what do you think? And they, they probably have the same detail, man. They'll say the same thing. Uh, it, it's, it's awfully difficult. But what, what I tr- try to say is that people should do their own research. They should do a Google search. They should read books. And the trouble with this is that most Americans don't read at all. That's true. And um, not even magazines or, or newspapers. And... Among the the minority of Americans that occasionally read books, most of them read junk. So a book like Peter Bregan's books, which are really not that difficult, they're not technical especially, but they would be well beyond the average person. So of reading, yeah. John, um, this this is kind of a, just an off side comment, but um, you know, uh, back in back in the day, I used to actually read a newspaper, a paper, a real newspaper. And I, I noticed that when I read a real newspaper that I would read pretty much all the articles. I, I'd start from the front page and I might move around a little bit. But now I don't read a real newspaper. I go to um, the New York Times website and I just click on whatever might be look interesting. So I don't think I'm getting the in-depth type of um, information that I used to get when I actually read a paper. I don't. Do you think there's anything to that that maybe – well, I do the same thing that you do, but um, I read a book uh, a number of years which changed my perceptions. Um, the book is called Toxic Sludge is Good for You, and it's an expose of the public relations industry. The author is John Stauber, S-T-A-U-B-E-R, and it shows that about 50% of what appear to be news stories in a newspaper 
are, are phony. They're, they're simply planted there by public relation firms. And especially if you get something that deals with a commodity like alcohol. Yeah. So time and time again, there will be a thing on how people have two or three, two or three things a day live longer, how it's good for your heart to have a couple of glasses of wine a day. There, this is phony. There is no research there. The reference is never given. And the Danes did a study which addressed this hypothesis, and they found there's absolutely no benefit to any amount of alcohol at all. That, you know, maybe a couple of drinks a day would not be too harmful, but, you know, every, every bit of it is at least a little bit harmful. And for alcoholics, of course, the first drink, you know, is, is fatal. And as you pointed out, you don't have to drink alcohol. You know, um, you know, we were talking about the when we wrote when we published that Naltrexone article on AA Beyond Belief, and that, that was a comment that you made is that hey, listen, you know, you don't have to drink alcohol. You can actually be abstinent. You don't have to drink exactly. It. Yeah, so yeah, there's actually no reason for it um, if you just use the 24-hour plan. And. Uh, there was a time when I may have derived pleasure, you know, a little bit, you know, even after I had crossed the invisible line, which would, you know, there were good periods and bad periods. But on the other hand, oh, I don't think I would enjoy a glass of wine or two or even if I could do it. I mean, yeah. oh, the taste is, you know, even the finest wine, the taste is not all that great. And if I did drink any alcohol at all, I would probably want to go on to, you know. Yeah, I can't okay. toy with it. I, you know, the first yeah, time I heard time. about the Sinclair method was a few years ago, and it really, it really captured me. I, I, I actually started thinking about drinking a lot to where it was actually becoming an, an obsession again. And that is, that's the most dangerous thing in the world for me. If it, once it, once that thought it becomes an obsession, um, I either have to drink or I have to talk to another alcoholic. I got to do something. But fortunately, I did talk to other alcoholics. I'm honest about what I'm saying. So. I know, it is kind of dangerous. I mean, you have to be careful about this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, I would be more than skeptical of any so-called research that showed uh, that it had any benefits at all. But I had lunch uh, with someone a few days ago, and it was like really a 12-step thing. It was only the two of us, and it just happened. But he, you know, clearly is an alcoholic. He's been hospitalized quite a few times in the last couple of years, and he was you know, conned into this naltrexone thing. And the last time I had seen him two months ago, um, he was not in good shape, but he thought he was. Mm. Uh, like, uh, but anyway, uh, when I saw him a few days ago, he was had lost a lot of weight. I mean, it was not a healthy sort of uh, loss of weight. And he admitted, you know, that he took naltrexone now and then, but it really was not doing what it should. And so I had the whole thing of trying to sell, you know, AA to him to get him to go to a first meeting. And it was hard because he also was, you know, was MIT graduate and not into religiosity. Mm. And I don't know if I succeeded or not. I mean, I, I gave him the meetings and I, I did my best to indicate that there were benefits in not trying to uh, do it alone. I mean, you know sobriety by yourself um one one last question that i had uh in your opinion uh, are, do you think the that aa uh aa's uh numbers are dropping substantially i i don't know and i'm not sure i mean i made my living in survey research but i can't think of how to design a study that really get at that um some meetings i've gone to do seem to be smaller than they were 10 years ago. And I don't know what that is. It it could be that younger generations, uh, there are fewer alcoholics or pure alcoholics. Well, actually, there are fewer pure alcoholics anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. But uh, I don't know. To me, you know, it's not the right way to gauge AA is to say that, you know, an increase in membership is good and a, a decline is bad. It's does AA do what it should for alcoholics who come to it? Uh, and uh, 
in that sense, I think it's, you know, a, a mixed bag. Interesting. That's a good right. point. Yeah, I know, yeah, um, I know Kevin and I have talked I that it seems like the meetings around here are not as big or as many as there used to be. Um, but, you know, and I've read the membership surveys that the AA publishes, but I, I've never actually seen. Have you ever seen a, a survey? Have you ever been asked to sign up on a survey? I don't um, know how they cover how they yeah. do I don't know how they would do it. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing point I should make is that even though I've you know criticized regular meetings a lot, um, there is something that almost is spiritual in attending a meeting, even if it's one that has religiosity. Uh, and it's simply the idea of in early sobriety. I you know it's a matter of whether I would live or not. You know, and that was true for several months. But simply being at a meeting with other people, you know, who looked you know healthy and you know recovering. Uh, gave me inspiration, you know, if they can do it, so can I. Absolutely. And I think that goes beyond any, you know, ideas or what people say or what they don't say. So I'm grateful for all of AA meetings, really, in a way, even including those uh, that have things I don't agree with. I agree with you on that. That's kind of a nice That's way a nice to way kind of end the interview, I think, that good positive note there. Thank you very much for your time, John, and I just want to give a personal thanks to you for writing this book. Uh, it's um, It brought me out of a, a dull period of my sobriety and has uh, made me want to go to meetings again. It's so kind it's, of funny, John. Um, Kevin's group, the Free Thinkers group in Kansas City, they're they're big on your book, and then our, our group is big on Mario Hornbacher's book. <laughs> oh, well, I, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we won't go to that debate. <laughs> but I like your book. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Take care now. Okay. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you join us again very soon, next week hopefully, as we have another interesting guest for you to listen to. Until then, be well. <laughs>